Welcome to Democracy in Question, the podcast series that explores the challenges democracies are facing around the world. I'm Shalini Randeria, the Rector and President of Central European University in Vienna and Senior Fellow at the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. My guest today is Professor Andras Shayo, former judge at the European Court of Human Rights. He's the founding dean of legal studies at the Central European University, where he is currently professor. A distinguished scholar in the field of human rights, Professor Shayo is a prominent constitutional lawyer who has been involved in the drafting of constitutions in Ukraine, Georgia, and South Africa. Among his many books, let me just mention two, Constitutional Topography, Values and Constitutions in 2010, and his most recent book titled Ruling by Cheating, Governance in Illiberal Democracy that came out this year. He's also the editor of the Oxford Handbook of Comparative Constitutional Law. In our conversation today with Andras Shayo, I would like to focus on the question of what he calls governance in illiberal democracy. What is the nature of the political phenomena that are called by this name? What relationship does such a regime have with the rule of law and indeed with the constitution? What kind of cheating is part of the governance style of these new regimes? And how can we restore democracy after an illiberal interlude? Let's find out with Professor Andras Shayo in this episode. Andras, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. Uh, I'm really glad to be involved in this great project. So, Andras, let me start with the fact that the emergence of illiberal regimes, so-called, out of populist movements has transformed democratic politics in many parts of the world in the last couple of decades. So that concerns about democracy are no longer just about the birth pangs of new democracies in the global south or in eastern central Europe. They now abound equally in so-called mature democracies. An important question about illiberal democracies in Europe and elsewhere is the question of legitimacy. Whether an illiberal regime like that of Orban, Erdogan, Bolsonaro can be called democratic given its assault on liberal institutions and the rule of law. In your new book, Ruling by Cheating, you make a very important argument about these when you say that while these regimes may exhibit authoritarian or even despotic tendencies, we should not call them authoritarian or despotic because they remain members of the democracy family. You seem to be thinking here in terms of what Wittgenstein called family resemblances, why do you think that these regimes should be thought of as members of the democracy family? And what implications does such an argument have for our critique of a regime like that of Orban in Hungary, for example? Certainly, this is a hotly debated issue because uh, to call something a democracy or to deny that it is a democracy has uh, very strong consequences both for shaping people's reaction and in terms of international legitimacy and domestic legitimacy. Now, to call these 
illiberal democracies, authoritarian, fully authoritarian regimes is, is very misleading. And it just increases internal resistance by those who are in power. There is a very important element here that the leaders of these plebiscitarian democracies are all the time maintaining a very important relation with that part of the population that they find uh, relevant. And what they find relevant is that part of the population that can uh, bring them back to power every time there is an election. So there are problems with the fairness of the elections, but these are relatively fair uh, and certainly more or less free elections. And there is a opportunity for the opposition to challenge it. The opposition, for a number of reasons, is not always capable of making use of that. But they are not beyond the point of no return. And there is a genuine uh, legitimacy, uh, genuine in the sense that what these uh, leaders do is, of course, through manipulation, the result of a popular desire, an obscure desire, perhaps, which is then channeled into very specific directions, like if you take uh, anti-migrant sentiment. This was, to some extent, present in these societies, but not something central. And it required a lot of uh, imposed fear to ferret it out from society. And now they are genuinely fed. Being genuine doesn't mean legitimate, of course. But that's how the system works. And I think that's why it should be uh, considered in this family. After all, perhaps Hungary was not invited to, to this meeting of democracies by Biden. Poland was. So they are uh, accepted at the table, at the family table. There are very distant relatives, but still they are showing enough resemblance to be considered part of the family. And perhaps there is a problem with the family. The family is not as noble as it claims to be. So many very interesting points that you make. Let me pick up one and then I'll come back to another. The first one I want to pick up is your remark, the family, the democratic family, and we have seen it gather recently at Biden's invitation, the democratic family is not as noble as it may look at first sight. Could you elaborate on the variation within the family and why distant relatives therefore are still relatives? So when people talk about democracy, and I am among many others, we talk about a value and a normative concept. And that's one thing. And then you have a political reality where various concepts are used for purposes of self-description, etc. The two are not 100% matching. So when, when you, you criticize, as I dare, uh, this uh, democratic family concept, this is not a criticism of democracy as such. Democracy has its own problems, and when you allow these uh, distant relatives to eat at the table the way they eat, uh, claiming that's their tradition, which is not. That's a problem. But it's, it's a very different problem from 
what is the political nature of that family that loves to call itself a, a family of democracies. That's a political construction. And again, I'm, I'm uh, convinced that keeping together and trying to civilize family members is necessary in this very complex world where there, the alternative is certainly not very promising. So you really have to create some kind of family togetherness. It comes at a price. I, I take your point. Let me pick up a second uh, idea that you put forward right at the beginning, and that is a key concept that you have borrowed also uh, in the book from Max Weber to describe the precise nature of these regimes, and that is the term you used, plebiscitarian leader democracy. So could you explain why this is a good conceptual framework to analyze the kinds of changes we have seen in Hungary, Turkey, Poland, Venezuela, to name just some of the countries that you have focused on. Right. So the idea of Max Weber is based on the assumption that there is a charismatic leader. He influences people with his charisma, or he is accepted because of his charisma. It's, it's not like a religious charisma that you just believe because of the direct relation of uh, the leader with some extra-human or superhuman characteristic or source of, of power. Here, there is a constant feedback, a loop. The leader insists on having uh, support from the people, invites people to endorse him, to identify with him. And that's the source of his power. And once he loses that uh, support, uh, like the goal did, uh, in normal circumstances, he, he resigns. That's why it is a democracy. Problem is that a, a plebiscitarian leader may have a vested interest in perpetuating his or her power. And therefore, uh, the, the plebiscite, which is already something quite manipulated, uh, becomes a tool of self-perpetuation, of the power's self-perpetuation. You ask the people to confirm the power of the leader on the terms set by the leader. That, I think, is how these systems work. So let me turn to another aspect, uh, Andras, which you point to in your book, and which is the argument that rule of law and what you very rightly call the usurpation of the state through an attack on constitutional institutions, these are important tools also in the playbook of these regimes that we are observing today, regimes that govern by cheating. Now, very interestingly, you lay out a theory of cheating in your book, which I think is important for very many reasons. One, because it allows us to think beyond each of these regimes as somehow constituting an exception. And it allows us then to grasp these practices as common to a particular toolbox, even though we may recognize that each illiberal democratic regime has emerged due to very specific and different reasons and conditions in a country, 
the idea that there could be a theory of cheating allows us to still look at the commonalities. And you provide some fascinating catalog of techniques of legal cheating, as you call them, which are the hallmarks of this kind of illiberal governance, practices that routinely subvert constitutionalism and bend it to the wishes of a charismatic leader. So you talk about self-blinding instead of self-binding, falsification of facts, arbitrary applications of rules, circumventions, etc. So could you say something about these legal cheating techniques and give us a couple of really concrete examples so that we can understand how are these techniques being really put into practice. Allow me to start with a case I had at the European Court of Human Rights, uh, which also tells you that this uh, self-blinding is also inherent in uh, judicial work, the difference being that it becomes systematic and systemic in a liberal democracy. So here, here is the example. The uh, Hungarian government uh, introduced a law which uh, suddenly ended tobacco sale licenses in Hungary. It was very easy to, to get a tobacco sale license. And there were uh, tens of thousands of, of shops selling tobacco. The government's argument was that this is detrimental to the health, of, especially of the youth, and they will limit the number of licenses. So they abolished without compensation, they revoked without compensation the uh, licenses of these shopkeepers, who many of them probably went bankrupt. And then they distributed these uh, new licenses to a limited number of people, uh, journalists and politicians claim that these uh, rather lucrative licenses went to government cronies. It was clear that was in the docket when we had to look into this, that the uh, new license holders received the license without any serious plan in the public bid process. So they just got this in a completely arbitrary way. Now, in European Court of Human Rights, considered this to be possession, that's the word used in the European Convention. A license is a possession. If you take it away without compensation, especially where there is not enough lead time to adjust to it, that's a violation. In that respect, it was an easy case. And we stopped there. Now, imagine this kind of reasoning in a domestic court where using very traditional legal reasons like the assumption that the legislative intent is in good faith. That's a standard uh, consideration in law, right? You have to assume good faith. And by the way, if you are a member of the Council of Europe, which is uh, the body behind the European Court of Human Rights, you, you sign a, a convention and a treaty which declares that you accept the principles of democracy. Now, how on earth can you assume that a member of an international organization created for democracy is not democracy? The presumption is that it is a democracy. So this is how it works. Basically, the legal system is 
inherently vulnerable where there is no good face. Let me come to a much larger point, Andrash, which you make in the book, and that is about constitutional changes and amendments. So the transformation of the Constitution through amendments or even revocation of key principles seems to be a common feature of right-wing political agendas across the world. The interesting question for me as somebody who is uh, not a lawyer and not a constitutional lawyer like yourself is, why are these leaders so obsessed with constitutions while they hollow them out? So let me quote you. You write, amendments to the constitution take place according to the momentary interests of the political power, like in any democracy where the constitution has no cumbersome amendment rules. The ultimate attachment to the spirit of the Constitution, the idea of respecting an unamendable core, is missing. So the one question is really, why then are these leaders, who definitely don't want the Constitution as uh, something which binds their power, holds them accountable, why are they so obsessed with constitutions and constitutional changes rather than just get rid, get rid of the Constitution? I think this insistence on, on legal forms and in particular constitution has partly to do with the existing social ethos. Uh, law is considered something that is respectable, that people have to respect. And uh, at least in, in, in Hungary, this has a very long tradition. Now, people were not particularly enthusiastic about uh, the forms of law, but, but they said, okay, laws are laws. So, in other words, again, if you, it's like Midas' touch. If King Midas, of one of the mythological kings in, in ancient Greece, if you, he was touching something, it turned into God. So, if, if you manage to declare something as a, in legal forms, then it has some credibility. That's socially attractive for the leader. There is a second, and I think equally important, element here. Once you control the constitution, you control the whole legal system. And in order to maintain a specific order that serves the interests of the power holder, you need a chain of command. And the law is a chain of command. It's not by accident that even communist leaders like Lenin insisted on what Lenin called socialist legality, because he was very much concerned that the central wishes are not followed uh, in the provinces. So law is an important tool of creating obedience within the state. But again, uh, take the example of, of uh, public procurement. If you can write the rules of public procurement, and this is all based uh, on the Constitution, deducted from the Constitution, if you can create rules of the public procurement, for example, creating exemptions from the public procurement in, in the name of national economic interest. The government grants itself the power to say uh, that certain investments, certain procurements are of this nature of specific economic interest for the national economy, though they can create exceptions to ordinary EU-sanctioned rules of public procurement. 
So you dictate through the rule the outcome. And in order to make this really coherent, you need to start with the constitution, which will then authorize the government to have uh, specific powers in specific circumstances. It's very difficult to challenge that once you accept it, that all this emanates from the constitution. And, and then third and last is that you really would like to be seen again at the table as a constitutional regime. You can say, look, I'm not only born into this, but I can demonstrate that I have all the features you have. You have a constitution, I have a constitution. Look at my constitution. Is there a separation of parts? Yes, there is. Is there a constructive vote of confidence? Oh, sure, we just copied it from the German basic law. So what's the problem? So that's, that's the third element, international recognition. So uh, let me pick up one point here, which you just mentioned in the German case, because, uh, of course, there's Habermas's very famous idea of Verfassungspatriotismus, yes, characterizing uh, Germany post-war, the need for legitimacy, um, uh, and that legitimacy provided by the Constitution and the basic law for the new regime which was uh, established after uh, 45. But even if I take the a very different example, and that would be India, when uh, there were broad uh, protests by ordinary citizens in the streets who took charge of the street, occupied the streets, and protested against the Citizenship Amendment Act uh, by the government in 2019, citizens were sitting on the crossings on the roads holding up the Constitution in their hands. And I was asking myself about the attachment that is necessary to the Constitution in order to be able to uh, save, protect the spirit of the Constitution. So could one argue that there must already exist a certain ambivalence or even an indifference to constitutions in those countries where this kind of subversion of the Constitution is possible? Or what kinds of conditions does one need to develop a certain emotional attachment, as we saw in India, quite unexpectedly but very strongly among very ordinary uh, citizens? to the Constitution as a founding document? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, everybody in Germany or even scholars in Germany would uh, subscribe to this idea of uh, constitutional patriotism uh, envisioned by Deniger and Habermas. But uh, we have to see this proposal in the German context. Certain forms of identification for uh, nation-building were off the chart because of Germany's history. So I think to, to rely on uh, nationalism or even adoring the state, those were impossible in Germany because of the history. And so you move towards a, a document which was everything that denies what is not good in German history. So that is, I think, the function of this theory. Uh, in Hungary uh, or in Poland, and 
very differently in, in Latin America, this is not a consideration. Uh, you, you are allowed to be a pure blood uh, nationalist. It's okay. So you are not constrained by this, this uh, historical experience, although the history should have taught a similar lesson. But fact is that you have an alternative. Now, the, the much more interesting story is, is that of India, where I think there was a real issue at, at stake. Uh, it was about hundreds of millions of people feeling that they will be treated as second state citizens. If, if politics continues along the lines of this new citizenship law, they will be further discriminated. And that was contrary, clearly contrary to the Constitution. So in that respect, the Constitution is really, it's not that your identity is built on the Constitution, but your identity is something that is affirmed and protected by the Constitution. So you turn towards the Constitution in those circumstances because of what you are or what you are afraid of that will be taken away from you. You find a kind of refuge, if you wish. So how do we begin to undo the damage done both to constitutions as well as to other institutions which provide the necessary checks and balances in a liberal democratic regime? And I ask myself, what are the kinds of tools that are there at our disposal to rebuild these institutions and also the ethos of liberal democracy after the illiberal regimes that uh, we have seen? And can institutions like courts, especially supranational institutions like the European Court of Human Rights, play a role here? I'm afraid no one knows the answer. And I, I'm also afraid that our thinking is very much blocked by legalism, by a, a ritualistic respect of uh, legal formalities, which are imposed on us by the very system. This tells you why is this so important for the charismatic uh, leader of plebiscitarian uh, democracy. Because once they started to insist on legal formalities, to build up their own power, they imposed a positivist frame of thought on political elites and even uh, general public. And of course, as I said, it's, it's a worst mistake to call these regimes authoritarian or totalitarian and compare them to totalitarian regimes. But it's part of the story that at least in totalitarian regimes, one of the sources of success of these regimes, the fact that it was so easy to carry through very, very serious human rights violations and oppression in 1933 had to do with uh, the German legal mentality, which is then criticized by a former minister of justice, legal philosopher, Radbrook after World War II, and he claimed that in certain circumstances you can just disregard the German law, which remained in force in forty-five. As a judge, we should not apply. Now, the pro problem with that logic is that it's simply not applicable in its totality. So what to do? Well, interestingly enough, the European Court of Human Rights and the Court of Justice of the European Union in Luxembourg 
they moved into a, a new direction. So the rule of law is not an absolute. It, it does have exceptions. You know, uh, there are crimes, but it is recognized that statute of limitation applies, and then you cannot uh, convict even those who should be convicted under the rule of law. And it works the other way around as well. So um, most international human rights conventions do allow a disregard of uh, the rule that there is no crime without uh, first having a law on it. When it came to war crimes, they made an exception to it. It's a recognized exception. And there are many other exceptions built into the rule of law because uh, legal formalities come at a price. Now, talking about the uh, European courts, one of the most important elements of the rule of law, I would say an indispensable one, is irremovability of judges. They can be removed only in a very specific process and uh, only for cause. So they, there ought to be an extremely serious disciplinary violation, etc. The courts realized that, like it's true with all rights, that rights are not absolute except when it comes to torture, to, to be exempt of torture, that's an absolute right. But most rights are not absolute. And the same applies to irremovability. It's also very important to stress that these measures require extreme caution. So only where this is compelling and where the measure is satisfying standard requirements of uh, proportionality that they can apply. But all I wanted to say that you asked me about international uh, bodies, in particular courts, and what I, I would like to learn from them is that uh, they offer a more nuanced uh, thinking about these things. It's not necessarily a practical uh, help, but at least it helps you to think through. And that's a way to, to approach this problem, what I call restoration of the rule of law. Thank you very, very much, Andras, uh, for these fascinating insights into both uh, the toolbox, the playbook of techniques of uh, cheating and illiberal governance, and also some thoughts about how we could restore the rule of law in these countries. Thanks. It was a real pleasure to talk about these matters with you. So we have heard a very strong argument why illiberal regimes are members of the democracy family rather than categorizing them as authoritarian or despotic. Some may be distant relatives, but all really existing democracies, whether new ones or so-called mature ones, don't always live up to their own ideals. These new plebiscitarian leader democracies enjoy popular support. They have been brought into being through free, more or less fair elections, even if these elections have been manipulated to some extent. But none of them are beyond the point of no return. The charismatic leader 
at the center of these regimes as dependent on popular support, even if this popular support can be based in a quite obscure popular sentiment or desire, but it's based in popular sentiment nonetheless. What should caution us, however, about these leaders is that they have an interest in self-perpetuation of their own power. It's an institutionalization of charisma, probably very different from what Max Weber meant by the future form of these regimes. We've also heard about the techniques of legal cheating as an important part of the toolbox of illiberal democracies, circumvention, arbitrary application of norms. But nonetheless, we have also learned why illiberal and authoritarian leaders are very keen on law and are wedded to constitutionalism, as it not only ensures a chain of command, which is legitimate, but they also are keen on the international recognition which this kind of adherence to a constitution brings with it. Constitutions may not build national identity, but they can protect and are being used to protect one's identity and citizenship rights. We don't have a blueprint on how to undo the damage done to liberal democracies today. We know, however, a little bit about what ought not to be done. Extra legal measures are no answers to restoring democracies. So adherence to rule of law in dismantling these illiberal regimes is absolutely crucial. This was the ninth episode of season three. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you have enjoyed it. Please go back and listen to any episode you might have missed and of course let your friends know about this podcast if you're enjoying it. The next episode will be the 10th and final episode of this season and then after a short break we'll see you again in the fourth season. You can stay in touch with the work of the Central European University at www.cu.edu and the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at www.graduateinstitute.ch/democracy.